Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation in chapter 3 as we continue in our exposition of verses 7 through 13 as our Lord addresses the church there in Philadelphia, the study that we're calling Dear Philadelphia. We haven't gotten very far in the verses. We've sort of taken a side road that we will continue down today. But I just remind you that we began by looking at verse 7 where it says, And to the angel of the church at Philadelphia write, and we talked about the Holy One addressing the city of brotherly love. And there we talked a little bit about this city, Philadelphia, that it was a real city that existed at the time of the New Testament writing that the Apostle John is here writing about these seven churches. They were real churches. And Philadelphia was a real church that was in a kind of a valley. And they were subject to earthquakes. And we know from history that in 17 A.D. that the city of Philadelphia was leveled by an earthquake. And I constantly remind you that we can know for certain that Philadelphia was leveled by an earthquake, but we can't know for certain that Jesus existed because we don't have any proof of that, according to historians. Which, of course, I say tongue-in-cheek, which is just hogwash. We have the Gospel. It is true. And if we can know facts about an earthquake, certainly there is more attestation to the life and ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus than to an earthquake in Philadelphia. But there was an earthquake in Philadelphia. And because it was prone to earthquakes, in fact, there was another earthquake not long after that where the people from the city were sort of afraid to live in the city. So they would come there and they would be there, but I guess they always kind of were a little bit suspicious and the town never really grew that large. Which is why we believe that as our Lord addresses them, in verse 8, when he says that he, I'm sorry, verse 7, where he says that he was holy, he was true, he was the key of David, who opens doors and no one will shut, and who shuts doors and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds, behold, I have put before you an open door, and no one can shut, because you have a little power. And that phrase we looked at, a little power, may likely have been addressing the fact that they were a small congregation with small resources, few resources. It also, as we mentioned, may have had uh, reference to the fact that there were many influences from paganism in that day and influences even from Caesar worship. So they had little power. But the one who is addressing the church addresses them in verse 7 as the one who is holy, the one who is true, and the one who has the key of David. That is, he is the high priest, the one who is holy. He is the one who is true. He is the great prophet. He is the embodiment of all truth. And he has the key of David. He is the king. Prophet, priest, and king. The Almighty, the all-powerful God is addressing this church and He says, even though you have limited power, I have unlimited power. I am the God who is God. I can open doors 
that no man can shut and shut doors that no man can open. In weeks to come, we're going to address more of what that means, what that meant to that church, and what that might mean even to this church. But this is the God who is God. And He is the one addressing this church. He can, He does, He will open doors for His church, for His people, and for His man, for His men to go forth with the truth. And with that in mind, in each of the past several weeks regarding opening doors, I've mentioned to you how we see this even in church history with men of God who have gone forth with the Gospel. And as we begin this morning, I wanted to bring to you another man whom God opened doors for in the ministry of the Word of God in the, in the nation of India. William Carey. He was born in England on August 17, 1761. He was the oldest of five children. And by the age of 14, William Carey became a cobbler. Now, we all are so familiar with cobblers. They're on every street corner now, right? Very, very rare do you ever see anything like a cobbler today. And I'm not sure the kids might even not, not even know what that is. It's someone who repairs shoes. And in William Carey's case, he was obviously pretty good at it. He repaired shoes and he even made shoes. But from the age of 14, he was a cobbler. Now, Carey married at the age of 20, and he and his wife had seven children. Two of them died in infancy, and another died only at the age five, leaving them, of course, with four children. Carey eventually took over a shoemaking business, yet at his bench he would dream of bringing the gospel to foreign lands. I understand that he would put maps of foreign countries over his workbench. And he would think about what it would be like to take the gospel to some of these foreign lands. And he would pray that God would open a door of opportunity for him to do that, to do so, to bring the gospel to those in need in foreign nations. However, he did not merely daydream, he did not merely wish, he studied, he worked, he read, and he taught himself Hebrew, Italian, Greek, Dutch, French. He taught himself all these languages while he was there as a young cobbler. He also became close to men like Andrew Fuller, who noticed his education and his abilities and his godly manner. And so in 1785, he was appointed as schoolmaster of the town of Moulton in England. And then he was invited to serve as the pastor of the local Baptist church there as well. In 1879, he became a full-time pastor in Lane Baptist Church in Leicester, where he preached a sermon from Isaiah 54. And in that sermon, he repeated that phrase for which he has become so famous. His famous quote, Expect great things from God and attempt great things 
before God. A worthy quote even for us today. But his context was in serving God as missionaries. Uh, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Now, from there, Carey is credited with founding the Baptist Missionary Society when then in 1793, he himself, with his wife and children, became missionaries to Calcutta, India. They later moved to Mendenpur, where he translated the New Testament into Bengali. Yet while in India, Carey's life was tried and tested. One of his sons, Peter, whom he loved dearly, died of dysentery. And because of that, his wife suffered a nervous breakdown from which she never recovered. And so she was always fighting mental illness for the rest of her life while they were there in India. In 1800, he moved and settled in Sarampur, where he there translated the entire Bible into Bengali. And they had a printing press there, so he was able to actually print the Bible in the native tongue and distribute it to the people there in that area of India. He also there established a Christian university for the people of India, where its main purpose was to train missionaries Missionaries who would take the Christian gospel to their fellow Indians in that country. William Carey has been called the father of modern missionaries. His theology was sound. His principles and his methods were biblical. And God honored his life and blessed him. And at the age of 72 when he died, he was attributed as, as I said, having been the father of modern missionary work and having led hundreds, if not thousands, to the Lord through his efforts and printing the Bible in their own native language. God truly opened doors for this cobbler. A man who never had real, as we would say, formal education, yet self-taught and self-learned, God honored that and opened doors for Him. Now, we don't have to go to a foreign land. We live in a dark community right here. Pasco County is the least churched county east of the Mississippi. Imagine. That is an astounding fact. Now, I say that it was that way at least recently, I wouldn't doubt that it still is. The least churched county east of the Mississippi. We live in a dark theological age where people don't know what they believe or why. Lots of people go to church, but in many cases they don't know what they believe or why. And so we have a mission field right here. And we need to continue to pray that God would open doors for us to bring the Gospel to people right here in Pasco County in North Tampa Bay. But, in order to do so, 
We need to be prepared. We need to study. We need to learn. We need to grow. And that is one of the things that Jesus praised this church in Philadelphia for doing. And that's what we have been looking at the past several Lord's Days. Look at what he says to this church in verse 8. I know your deeds. He knows what goes on in your church. He knows what goes on in this church. That ought to shake some churches up. God knows what's going on. He knows that you're not preaching His Word. He knows that you're not maintaining the truth and the doctrine and the biblical integrity of the Gospel. He knows what's going on in these churches that are playing games. These churches that are more focused upon entertainment than they are upon the Word of God. Churches that are focused upon healing and the health and the wealth gospel. He knows. This is what he says to the church in Philadelphia. And then he says, I have opened a door which no man can shut. He speaks about them having little faith. But he says, the first reason that he was willing to open doors for them, if we can say that reverently and properly. But the first reason that He opened the doors for them was that they kept His Word. And that you have kept My Word. This is a vital and an important biblical principle for all of us. For all Christians. We must, we need to, we are supposed to Keep God's Word. So we've been spending a few weeks looking at exactly what that means. Not exhaustively, but this will be the third message dealing with keeping God's Word. And this will be, I believe, the concluding message in that regard. So it's by no means exhaustive, but it is so vital. And we began by looking at Psalm 119, even as we sang in that hymn a little while ago from the Trinity hymnal, where the psalmist speaks of the fact that his word is what keeps his, his life pure. As he says, thy word have I kept in my heart that I may not sin against thee. And we looked at several of the passages in Psalm 119 as he spoke of the Word of God being a light into his path and the Word of God reviving his heart, reviving his life. And how important the law of God was. How important the truth of God's Word is. So all of us as Christians are to be those who keep the Word in our hearts. That's a personal thing. You have personal devotions. You personally read through the Scriptures. You love the Word of God because it is the Word of God that showed you the truth of Christ and all that He has done. And all that He's done for me. So Thy Word I have kept in my heart. We went on from there to look at the Gospel of John to see the importance of keeping His Word. From chapter 8, we saw those who kept His Word were those that Jesus said had eternal life. You keep My Word, you have eternal life. 
and he compared those who did not hear his word, who did not heed his word, who did not want his word, as those who were serving their father, the devil. We also saw from John chapter 14 that those who love him are those who keep his word. And I want to ask you to turn to John 17, where we also saw a little bit further in his high priestly prayer, not only that the importance of keeping his word, that you are the ones who have life, eternal life, and not only the fact that those who love him keep his word, but look at what he says as he prays to the Father regarding his disciples in John chapter 17. And Jesus says of them in verse 6, I manifested Thy name to the men whom Thou gavest Me out of the world. Thine they were, and Thou gavest them to Me. This is the way God works. God takes men and saves them. We are saved by His grace. Thou gavest them Me, and they have kept Thy Word. Similar language to what we read in Revelation chapter 3. They have kept Thy Word. You remember in John 6, and this is what we looked at. In John 6, so many of the disciples, which were just men who were following Jesus for the wrong motives, stopped following Him. They didn't follow Him anymore. And he turned to his disciples, his apostles, and he said, Will you too leave me? And he said, To whom will we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. They kept his word. And they kept on following him. This is a biblical principle that those who are indeed truly saved will persevere to the end. They will persevere both in the fact that they will be Christians till they die, and they will persevere in the fact that they will look like Christians till they die. They will persevere to the end, they will always be saved, and they will always persevere in the faith, and they will look like they are saved. And how do you do that? By keeping the Word. Christians will keep the Word. Now, that's where we left off last week. And what I would like to do is today turn from seeing this in more of an individual thing, as a personal thing, which is the way it has to be at first. You have to have the Word of God in your heart. You have to persevere and follow God and keep His Word in your life day by day. If you love God, you will keep His Word. If you are keeping His Word, you're, you're the one who's saved. If you're not keeping His Word, don't say you're saved. But here we are personally keeping His Word. I want to turn now and see how this manifests itself to a church, to a congregation that is keeping His Word. And for this, I want to ask you to turn with me to Timothy. But first, I want to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy. I know we read from 2 Timothy, but I want to ask you to turn first to 1 Timothy, chapter 1. And here we're going to see a beginning of the principle as it's manifested in the individual and then spread to the church. First Timothy chapter 1. Here we're going to see that keeping His Word involves teaching His Word. And teaching His Word 
comes from teachers. Teachers in your church. And so Paul is addressing Timothy in 1 Timothy, and he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. We'll talk a little bit about what strange doctrines are in a moment. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's start taking this passage apart just a little bit. First of all, he's contrasting those false teachers with the gospel, the word of God, which he's bringing. We'll see that in a moment. But these were, there were obviously men already in that day who were trying to teach that the text says strange doctrine. They were perverting the gospel. I believe that uh, phrase is translated teaching differently in the King James and some other versions. They were teaching, though, strange doctrine. Different doctrine is what we can take from that. Different from what? Different doctrine from what? And this is what we must understand. And this is what we must answer. Look at what he says in verse 10. As he goes through some of the sins that men are involved in in verses 9 and 10, he gets down to the end of verse 10 and he speaks of this as being contrary to sound teaching. So he says at the end of verse 3 that they're teaching strange doctrine as opposed to sound doctrine, sound teaching, faithful teaching of God's Word. And yet they're teaching something different. So what we have here is churches that are involved in allowing into their church strange teaching, strange doctrine. Now we're dealing with the book of Revelation and the church there in Philadelphia. So keep your finger here in 1 Timothy, but go back to the book of Revelation. Back to the book of Revelation. I want to draw your attention to some of the things that we have seen in some of the other churches that Jesus has addressed. Look at chapter 2 and verse 12 where He speaks to the church at Pergamum. He addresses them as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And remember, that's a picture of the Word of God. The Word of God. And He is the truth. He is the Word of God. But look, He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. They were dwelling where Satan's throne was. And look at verse 15. Some of who hold this teaching of the Nicolaitans. This was a cult, a false teaching. And he calls on them to repent from doing that. Then to the church at Thyatira, he speaks to them. 
He says in verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and leads my bondservants astray. This was a problem. False teachers, as Paul even warned in the book of Acts, would come into the churches and they would lead people astray. In this church in Thyatira, there was a woman obviously teaching, which is against Scripture first of all, and she's leading them astray. Her name was not Jezebel. Who's going to name their kid Jezebel? But Jesus called her Jezebel. And she's teaching them these false doctrines and leading His bondservants astray that they would act immorally and eat things sacrificed to idols. All kinds of wickedness. Right in the church. And so compared to Philadelphia, Jesus is saying, you've kept my word. And this is what Paul is addressing in Timothy. First Timothy, in 1 Timothy, Paul is saying to them that there are those who have entered the church. There are those who are, were at least in that day bringing strange doctrine, strange teaching, teaching that is different from the sound teaching of the Word of God. We have to be careful of that. We have to be on our guard against that. Now we say, and I know, I hope you know, that no man that stands behind the pulpit is perfect. No man that stands behind the pulpit is infallible. No priest is infallible. No pope is infallible. No man is infallible. God's Word alone is infallible. That's why we read through it consecutively without comment. Believing that God's Word is infallible, while I am always going to make mistakes. I don't mean to make mistakes. I don't intend to make mistakes. But I am a man. And the best of men are men at best. What do you expect? I'm a sinner. So I make mistakes. I'm not infallible. But the difference is some men strive to adhere to the Scriptures, to adhere to the sound doctrine of God's Word, the historical doctrine, the historical gospel of God's Word. And in our day, men like that are getting fewer and fewer and fewer. Where more and more people are raising up with strange doctrines. We've mentioned a couple of these strange doctrines over the weeks. Carnal Christianity, mention that again. To justify their own wickedness and sin, they invent this carnal Christian theory. Strange doctrine. Theistic evolution. Strange doctrine. Well, yes, God did create the world, but it still took billions of years. But the Bible says, one day... A morning and evening and then the next day. Oh, no, no. That could mean different things. Strange doctrines. And you can go down the list in your mind. All kinds of this, this health and wealth nonsense. God wants you to be rich. God never wants you to be sick. Why don't we see that in the Scriptures? Paul was sick, shipwrecked, beaten, and he certainly wasn't wealthy. 
But this is strange doctrine that has permeated and taken over the church. And I would suggest to you too the doctrines such as Arminianism and Dispensationalism. So prevalent, so pervasive. But this is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul was warning them, be careful what you are learning. I have to be careful of what I teach. You have to be careful of what you're learning. I know some of you are going to have hard times when you go back to different churches up north or where, where you may spend some time visiting other relatives because you've learned sound doctrine or at least beginning to. And now you've got to go back to this strange doctrine. And I hope that you're upset. And I hope that it will upset you. Because this is my job, as we will see, to teach you sound doctrine so that you can what? As Philadelphia, keep His Word. How are you going to keep His Word if you're not hearing His Word? How are you going to keep His truth if you're not hearing His truth? If all you get is stories and, well, I was leaving Bengali and I went to then, oh, I was on a plane with somebody and I told him this and I said that, and over and over, story after story after story, I wonder where these guys get these stories from. I don't have that many stories. Maybe that's why I don't have that many people. I need more stories. But that's, I'm not here to tell you stories. I'm here to show you the Word of God. So that you can have the Word of God. So that you can keep the Word of God. And this is what Paul is warning Timothy about. These men who have come in with strange doctrines. I can't understand for the life of me why people, why men who are supposed to be teachers in churches, pastors in churches, would want to teach something strange and things that are other than the Bible. Why don't they just teach the Bible? Because the Bible is what accomplishes and yields so much in people's lives. Look at what Paul says. In verse 5, he says, The goal of our instruction, and this is, I can tell you from my heart, the goal of my instruction, as I try to bring sound doctrine, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. These are good things. These are the fruit of the Gospel. He speaks more about that in Galatians, but certainly this is also the fruit of the Gospel. That as you bring sound instruction, it brings forth a love from a pure heart. Let's talk about that for a moment. Love from a pure heart. What is he talking about? He's not talking about romantic love. Right? He's not talking about just that you love your wife or you, you love your husband or you love your kids. Although that would be good and that is good and that is commendable. We need more people to remain faithful to their spouses and to train their children out of love and rightly. But that's not just what he's talking about. What do you think he's talking about? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel as he speaks about what the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. Love the Lord your God. And when you love the Lord your God, you will love His Word. And His Word teaches you about God. 
and His Word teaches you who God is and what God is like, and so you will love Him more. It goes hand in hand. But what is the next thing that Jesus said is the greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summation of the Gospel. I'm telling you right here in the text, He's talking about the law. Look at what He says in verse 8. We know that the law is good. He's talking about the law. What is the summation of the law? These are the commandments Jesus gave. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we've talked about this in our Sunday school time and in other times that when you love the Lord your God, you're going to keep those commandments which are directed towards God, one through four. And when you love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to keep the next commandments, the six that are related to those around you. That you won't murder, that you won't lie, that you won't steal. And when you love the Lord your God, you'll keep His Lord's day. When you love the Lord your God, you won't take His name in vain. When you love the Lord your God, you will believe in Him and worship Him. All of these things. This is the love that comes from sound doctrine. As opposed to strange doctrine. Gosh, I I wish with all of my heart that I could just inculcate into each one of you a strong love for the God who is the God of the Bible and His truth and everything else will come as it should. Do that with sound teaching. Do that with sound doctrine. And then you keep His Word. You keep His Word as you love the God of the Word. And then you will love one another as well. This is certainly part of what He says when He says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. It has to be a pure heart. That heart of stone has to be taken out and replaced with a heart of flesh. That's done by none other than Jesus. Paul couldn't do that. I can't do that. But God does that. Gives you a pure heart. And when you have a pure heart, a pure heart is a heart that will love God purely and will strive to live purely with your fellow man, with your neighbor. But look what he also says, that not only will you have love from a pure heart, but a good conscience. A good conscience. Now, this is an interesting principle. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, because the same writer, Paul, speaks about this here in Romans chapter 1. Speaks about your conscience. And he does so in the context of speaking about the gospel. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. You know, that's what I'm saying. The true gospel, as opposed to strange doctrine, sound gospel, sound teaching, sound gospel, sound biblical principles are the power of God to salvation. It is truth that sets man free. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed in the Bible, in the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I hope you're not ashamed of it. That's 
Philadelphia was not ashamed of it. They kept His Word. We strive to keep His Word. Now, here's the opposite. Here's the contrast. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what they're doing. We strive to bring the truth. we got a billion people that are striving to suppress it. The road is narrow and few are on it who are trying to bring the truth. Who are trying to be righteous and godly people. But the road is broad that leads to destruction and it's full of unrighteous people. And what do they do? They strive to suppress the truth. They strive to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Out of wickedness. Because they don't know the sound doctrine, the sound teaching of the Scriptures. And since they don't want the Bible, and since many people don't want God's Word or the Bible or any of that, what is it that causes them to get so upset with the Gospel, with the truth, with God's Word? Why do atheists who say there is no God spend so much time and money to prove that something that they say doesn't exist, doesn't exist. Why do they do that? That's the next verse. Verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. What is that? Your conscience. That's what we call it. Your conscience. The conscience of the sinful man cries out to himself day in and day out. You are a sinner! You're a sinner! What you're involved in is sinful! What you're involved in is wicked! There is a God! You will answer! And what do they do? No, there isn't! Suppress it. That's the picture that Paul's... They're like pushing it down into a box. No, there isn't a God. There's evolution. No, there isn't a God. The world just came from the Big Bang Theory. No, I won't have to answer to Him. No, I don't need a Savior. No, I'm not a sinner. There's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as any of this. We're just animals. We've just evolved. They continually suppress the truth. And we try to bring the truth. One has a bad conscience and one has a good conscience. And so when you go back to 1 Timothy and Paul says to them, our goal of instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. That's a good conscience that knows that we are striving to be holy. Now, they know they're not perfect. How do I know they know? How do you know? How do we know? How do we all know we're not perfect? Because we do have a conscience. We all have a conscience. And so we all know that we're sinners. But yet, the difference is a good conscience is a conscience that knows that though I have sinned, I have a Savior. Even as John says in 1 John, even though we know we sin, we have an Advocate. We know that. And so, yes, our conscience does rightly accuse us and we repent. And that leaves us with a good conscience. 
as opposed to those who have a conscience of unrighteousness and wickedness who seek to suppress the truth. We don't want to suppress the truth. We want the truth. And a true Christian will even welcome the truth of a conscience convicting him that something in his life is not right. We would welcome the light of the Gospel to shine upon our hearts and our lives. Oh God, try me and see if there be any wicked way within me. And then turn from that. Turn from that. A good conscience. That's what sound instruction brings. Look what he says next. He says, a sincere faith. Hey, where does a good conscience come from? <laughs> sincere faith. Sincere as opposed to what? What does he mean, sincere faith? Sincere faith is contrast to spurious faith, phony faith, false faith. And that all has to do, again, with the belief of God and the belief of the Gospel because everybody's got faith in something. You all have faith. Everybody's got faith. We're talking about faith in the God. You have faith those chairs will hold you up. I have faith that this platform won't collapse. We have faith. We have confidence in something. But we're talking about sincere faith in God. And even in that sense, there are plenty of people who have false faith, phony faith, unjustified faith. I remind you of what we saw last week with Jesus dealing with the Pharisees. These were the religious guys. They had all kinds of confidence in their religious system. But Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. They had all kinds of quote-unquote faith, but theirs was not genuine. Those who love His Word, He said, are saved. Those who love Him love His Word. Those who love His Word have life, eternal life. And, and, and therefore, those who have sincere faith are those who trust in what the Bible says. In what the Bible says about God being a God of grace. And mercy, and we sincerely and definitely believe in what His Word says. Real faith is faith that is based upon His Word. So true faith is real faith, and real faith is biblical faith. And all of this comes from the context seen in verse 10. As again he goes through the immoral man, the homosexual, the kidnapper, the liar, the perjurer, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The glorious gospel. This is the contrast. This is the great news. This is good news. You see, despite all your sin, and he lists these sins in verses 9 and 10, don't listen to the unsound or strange doctrine. And despite all the sin that you may be involved in, there is a glorious gospel of God that shows you, O oh sinner, that you can be saved by His great mercy and grace as He draws you to Himself and opens your heart, there is great hope for you, peace for you, salvation for you, heaven for you. The great, glorious Gospel of God. 
Do you realize how privileged we are to know the glorious gospel of God? The glory of the God of the gospel? The glory of His Son, Jesus Christ? The wonder and awe of meeting with Him and being in His presence. This is a glorious gospel which is ours. That's why church for some of us is the best day of the week. When we come to church, when we come to meet with God and we come to meet with His people, it is a supernatural, wonderful experience when we get to think about to soak up, to enjoy the glorious Gospel and the glory of God and the glory of His Son shown in the Gospel. What a privilege is ours to be such a sinful people who have been set free from our sin, given a pure love, a good conscience, and a sincere faith because of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It makes you want to say, Hallelujah! Even as we sang, Hallelujah! Praise Jehovah! Hallelujah! What a Savior! This is what we have as Christians. Now, this is what we are supposed to find in church. Timothy saying, you teach the sound gospel. You teach the true gospel, which has been entrusted to me, which I have entrusted to you. You teach your church these sound truths, that they will have these things, and they will see the glorious gospel of God. And this is what he opens up then in his next letter to Timothy, then in verse 1 and following of chapter 4. So look at Second Timothy chapter 4. As we see, not only does keeping His Word involve teaching His Word, but keeping His Word involves preaching His Word. And so here He says in verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is judge of the living and of the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Preach the Word. It is by the foolishness of the Word preached that God saves men. It is by the foolishness of the Word preached within perfect men that God uses His Word to train up a church, to lead a church into godliness and holiness. My dear beloved brother Timothy, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The time will come when they will not endure what? Sound doctrine. So what does that mean? They'll be bringing strange doctrine. They won't endure sound doctrine. They'll want strange doctrine. And here we see a sort of summation of how you could tell strange doctrine. Wanting to have their ears tickled. Wow, my friends, you're so good. We're all pretty good. We just need to be a little better. God can help you to be better. And that's we want to help you to be a little better. Strange doctrine. Having their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to what? God's Word? Or in accordance to their own desires? 
And they will turn their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Just what we were talking about. Myths. Health and wealth gospel. All these things. Myths. Carnal Christian theory. Myths. You save yourself. Myths. That there's uh, no kingdom of God yet. Myths. All of these things. They will turn aside to these things. And so in light of that, he tells Timothy, preach the Word. I one time dealt with this passage right here. And I had a couple leave the church because of it. Because I dealt with this passage and I said, no matter how tough things get, preach the Word. And even if people say they don't understand this, they don't get this, they don't understand all this Bible theology, instead we should sing to them. We should rap Christian theology to them. Or we should dance Christian theology to them. Or we should do all these things. I said, no! No matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how repulsed people are by it, preach the Word. Why? Because that's what we're called on to do. Preach the Word. God does not call men to sing the Word. God does not call men to dance the Word. God does not call men to mime the Word. He calls men to preach the Word. And so even though it's a dark day and a dark hour for theology, we don't resort to stories and jokes and nonsense. We continue to do what God called on us to do, to preach the Word. Why? Because we believe in what He said to the church in Revelation chapter 3. Because He is the one who opens doors. And the one who opens doors is the one who commended them for keeping His Word. Keeping His Word. I believe with all my heart that this is what Philadelphia was doing. That's why Jesus commended them. They kept His Word and they preached His Word. They were tenacious to sound doctrine. And this is what builds a church up. You remember that passage in Ephesians that we've turned to on a number of occasions in Ephesians chapter 4 where Jesus says that He gave some apostles and some prophets and some teachers and He says, why? It's to the equipping of the church, to the building up of the church in maturity. Sound doctrine brings you mature people. Some people are afraid of that. When you have sound biblical answers, they think you're arrogant. What are you going to do? You ask me a question, I have an answer, and you don't like it. I was accused of that so much. How can you say this, preacher? How can you say this? And I'd say, well, here's why. Because the Bible says this. The Bible says this here, and here's what the Bible says about that over there. You're just arrogant. You think you know everything. You expect me to have the answer. I give you the answer, and then you get mad at me for giving you the answer. You can't win. Because they will not endure sound doctrine. But this is what builds a church. This is what matures a church. And this, I believe, is what was going on in the church here in Philadelphia as Jesus commends them for keeping His Word. That church and the church leaders there had His Word. In their hearts, they taught His Word to the people. They preached His Word as occasion gave 
opportunity. They were those who kept His Word. You know, I'm a man just like any other man and I want to be liked. Everybody likes to be liked. Nobody likes to be disliked, shunned, told you're a fool or whatever because your church is small or whatever. Everybody likes to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. But the, the bottom line is that I am not called to make you happy. I am not called to the pastoral ministry to make you happy. Happy, happy, happy. That is not why I am called here. I am called to preach the Word, reprove, rebuke, to teach, to instruct, to mature, and then in that we rejoice together as we're joyful in the Lord. But to just try to please everybody, no one can do it, first of all. And no one is ever called to do that in a church. It's just not biblical. So sometimes, and we know that this is the case, that bringing the Bible is an offense. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And yet, despite the shuns, despite the ridicule, despite any of this, we are called to keep His Word. In our hearts, in our lives, to teach His Word in our church, to preach His Word in our church. That is what Jesus commends. That is what this church did. They didn't even have Bibles. But as Paul came, or a letter from Paul came, or John came, as we we saw that it's likely John who established this church, when they heard from these men, they remained faithful to it. Do you see why it is so important for you to study your Bibles? personal Bible study, personal devotions, to have His Word in your heart. Do you see why it is important for you to be at worship? And I know that some are not here today, and I know their hearts would be that they wish that they could be, but for sickness they're not able. Because that's the difference. You see, a lot of people look for excuses not to go to church. Some people hate it when they can't go to church. It's important to go to church. I love to go to church. I love to learn. I'm looking forward to that conference. I haven't been preached to myself in years. I want to be preached to. I want to hear God's Word. It's been a long, long time. That's why it's important to go to Sunday school. Sunday school where we have the interaction. Where you can ask questions and learn about God's Word to better equip you to keep His Word. That's what God commended at the church in Philadelphia. And I pray that that He will look upon us and see a people of the book who keep His Word. Let's pray.